Prince Harry wants a police investigation, the royals release their Christmas cards, and we have polling on the fallouts from the royal race scandal. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's chief royal correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello listeners and welcome to the show. Prince Harry was hacked by British tabloid publisher Mirror Group newspapers. The High Court has found. So this is the company that prints the Daily Mirror, the Sunday Mirror and the Sunday People. So these are three famous UK tabloids. They're probably not kind of the biggest, most high profile UK tabloids. That would be the Sun and the Daily Mail, which is a mid-market tabloid. But these are, needless to say, big newspapers that have played a part in royal history dating back decades. Uh, The Mirror, for example, for those who have been watching the recent season of The Crown, was the newspaper that published the um, swimsuit photograph of Princess Diana. Um, Now, this is a victory and it is a resounding victory, but there is also a lesson here for Harry, which I'm going to get to shortly. But before I do that, I just want to take a look at what actually happened, what the judgment said and what the court actually ruled. So among the articles that were a product of hacking, just to give some examples, was a story about Harry smoking cannabis at a pub called the Rattlebone Inn, where apparently other people had been doing harder drugs. Um, William was quoted in one of these articles telling Harry, this serves you right. You have been partying far too hard and too recklessly to not eventually be caught. You've been an accident waiting to happen. Let this be a lesson to you. Now, the judge found this article was a product of phone hacking, but not necessarily of Harry's phone. It's not totally clear to me where that William quote would have come from, whose voicemail, um, but the judge did find that that story was a product of hacking, and one of the journalists who was bylined on it did say that she doesn't make stuff up and didn't make stuff up. Now, they did hack Harry's phone, though, um, according to Mr. Justice Fancourt, the judge. And there was another story about Prince Harry um, referring to Princess Diana's butler, Paul Burrell, as a two-faced expletive um, and saying that he was going to refuse to meet Burrell, um, whereas William apparently wanted to. Um, Now, the judge said that this story was a product of hacking Harry's phone. He said some of Harry's evidence on it was a little bit confused, but needless to say, Harry won on that particular allegation. That's an example of one that he won on in which it was his own phone that was hacked. However, he didn't win on everything. One story that was not a product of phone hacking, according to the court, for example, which was high profile during the trial, was a story about Princess Diana visiting Harry when he was at Eton. So that, for those who remember it, was not judged to have been a product of phone hacking. Now, a statement on Harry's behalf was read out outside court by David Sherp on Harry's lawyer, and it sought to turn the heat on Piers Morgan. Um, Morgan was the editor of the Daily Mirror from 1995 to 2004. He is obviously also a very outspoken critic of Harry and Meghan. And, you know, famous media pundit lost his job at Good Morning Britain after the Oprah interview, etc, etc, etc. Harry said previously that Morgan's whole media war against the Sussexes was basically revenge for this lawsuit. And Harry's statement says that, his current one that is, says that editors such as Piers Morgan clearly knew what was going on during his time as editor. And the judge also, too, kind of heavily implied Morgan was likely well aware of what was going on. Um, Fancourt said he accepted the evidence of a number of witnesses, including Omid Scobie. Scobie said that he actually witnessed Piers Morgan being told a particular story had come from a voicemail. 
And that story was about the Australian singer Kylie Minogue. And the account that Omid gave basically seems to match up to invoices to a private investigator um, at around the right time in 2002 and a news story by a reporter who had Kylie Minogue's phone number on his Palm Pilot. So the court found that this evidence was reliable. And another former Mirror reporter said Morgan had played in the newsroom an answer phone message that Paul McCartney left on Heather Mills' voicemail, which he was said to have obtained from another journalist, Neil Wallace. Piers Morgan obviously came out swinging, no surprises there, and suggested Harry wouldn't know the truth if it slapped him in his California tanned face. Harry has, however, through this statement that was read out by Sherborne outside court, Um, He's called for a police investigation into hacking by the Mirror Group. The police have said that they'll look carefully at the findings of the court, that is. I do think, though, that it's important to note that the police actually did investigate phone hacking at the Mirror before. Um, They did not pursue prosecution of anybody uh, as as part of that investigation. And there have also been rulings at the High Court before that phone hacking took place at the Mirror and was widespread. And also, you know, Mirror Group journalists, including Dan Evans, who's now a byline Times, have admitted hacking phones for the Mirror. Dan Evans was like this kind of supergrass witness. He was a prolific phone hacker who then flipped and and gave evidence to the police. He, He pleaded guilty to a number of phone hacking charges, but gave this kind of like widespread evidence about uh, phone hacking um, and at uh, the News of the World as well as the Mirror Group titles. Um, so really, I struggle personally to see how the police and the Crown Prosecution Service are going to reopen all of that if they have effectively looked at it once already. It's not clear to me, and it wasn't clear at the time, why they didn't pursue criminal prosecutions against anybody at the Mirror, um, but they didn't. Um, and so if they backtrack on that now, I mean, it will be somewhat embarrassing for them apart from anything else, but um, we shall see. It could happen. Who knows? Um, and so essentially, this is a resounding victory for Harry, and I don't want to take that away from him at all. He will, I'm sure, apart from anything else, be hugely relieved that having won this, I mean, he was awarded £140,000 in damages, which is probably a little bit less than $180,000. So he's got that money. I mean, it's not a huge sum of money for Harry, but the big thing is it will reduce the amount that he has to pay in costs. Um, And he is a man who has filed, I think him and Megan between them have filed about 10 lawsuits since 2019. And if he had started to lose these cases, then the total bill could have been absolutely gargantuan. One lawyer, Mark Stevens, um, suggested to me that had he lost the lot, the total bill could have been in the ballpark of $20 million and therefore potentially more than the cost of Harry's house. Um, So that is a huge amount of money, but this one's a win. Uh, There might be some costs associated with it because Harry didn't win on every single allegation. So he may have to um, pay costs in relation to the ones that failed. But he, you know, it's still going to be a huge moral victory and psychological boost for him going into his other cases, including against the Daily Mail. There are, though, some lessons here, I think, for Harry to take into the future, because, like I said, some of these claims were rejected. Now, I don't actually think that takes the sheen off the victory. It's more that there is an existing problem with Harry's worldview that exists in Spare. It's existed in places in Netflix. I think it even existed in Oprah. And it exists in this case too. And it's quite striking to see the judge articulate it in a way that is actually really clear. And I really think that Harry needs to learn the lessons from it. So here we go. 
The judge found one of Harry's claims, for example, was hopeless. That was the word used because the information that Harry had complained about had been published by the Press Association before it had appeared in the Mirror. Um, several claims were thrown out because the articles were published before the privacy laws he'd sued under even came into force. And even even then, the judge didn't really sound like he was particularly moved by the evidence anyway. Um, Harry's allegation uh, of blagging over a story about him um, getting injured playing rugby was described as, as pure speculation. And there's, here's a little snippet from the judgment that I think is particularly important. This is in relation to a story about a cadet march. I think Harry was like leading the cadet march and they, they wrote a new story about it. The judge wrote in his judgment, the Duke accepted in cross-examination that the article was no more than a composite version of the palace announcement and the press association report. There is no documentary material to suggest otherwise in support of the claim in relation to this article. And one does wonder what kind of judgment was exercised when claims are pursued to trial in respect of articles of this kind. So that is, I think, you know, judges are usually very measured in their phraseology and don't tend to kind of opine or uh, give opinions about claimants and the way that cases are filed. Um, And I think Harry should really listen to this in terms of that kind of perspective that there were some errors of judgment in terms of the fact that he sort of spray-gunned allegations at this lawsuit. The feeling that wafts off the page is basically that Harry just threw the kitchen sink at this case, hoping that something would stick. And many of those allegations turned out in reality to be fairly baseless, which was also the feeling when Harry actually gave his witness testimony that he was presented with some you know, embarrassing... Uh, details about the fact that the information he was complaining of had already been in the public domain before it was published by the Mirror. Now, some of his allegations have stuck, and clearly those allegations were not baseless. Um, And so that is why Harry gets to call this a resounding victory. But it seems like there was no real concrete attempt made to separate the wheat from the chaff, Um, and that Harry basically approached this whole thing with zero balance, that he basically assumed everything published was a product of phone hacking. The judge effectively said that. And the judge has found that that's not true, that some of these stories were not the product of phone hacking. And this is a recurring theme with Harry, that he struggles to show other people the balance that he wants in the treatment given to him and Meghan. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, the British press haven't been balanced in their coverage of Harry and Meghan. You know, that is totally legitimate as a criticism of them. Um, But Harry is also quite extreme in some of his own interpretations and conclusions about the world, whether it is kind of stating as a blunt fact that Camilla was leaking information about him because she wanted to establish herself as a future queen consort um, without really giving any kind of proper grounding for that. Or some of the stuff in Spare that I've spoken about before, you know, there's one bit of it where he says Annex, uh, press secretary to the Queen, very obviously Dickie Arbiter, um, had kind of told him to expect no mercy. But then when you go back to the actual quote, it wasn't from Dickie Arbiter, it was from somebody who had no connection to the palace. And it was not a threat of no mercy. It was simply a, a warning to Harry that conservatives would not take kindly to him quitting the monarchy. So there's all these kind of little bits and pieces and places of Harry's argument and his narrative and his messaging to the world that lack balance, right? And so here you have it then in this court case and the judge is is having to engage with this lack of balance as well. So Harry really needs to get on top of this because apart from anything else, people are going to hold him to a very high bar. They're going to hold him to a higher bar than they hold the Daily Mail to, but also, and the Mirror Group for that matter. Um, But also, you know, Harry has to remember that two things. One, 
he is the media now. Like once upon a time, he was a guy. He was the guy who hated the media more than anybody else on planet Earth. And now he's crossed the floor and he's gone from hating the media to being the media. You know, he's published a book. He's uh, been, you know, he's produced a six hour Netflix documentary and he is the media. And so he now has to meet the standards that he has set for the media he criticizes. But also, people hate journalists. Like, Harry drags himself down to basically being the same. to being And not the same, because obviously he's not acting with his phone. But to being as unbalanced and as kind of skewed in his perspective as the journalists he criticises, then the potential outcome is that he'll be as hated as much as the journalists he criticises. Um, there was polling done years ago. Um, I for- Forgive me, I forget the polling agency. It was a long time since I've seen it, which suggested that only about 50% of Daily Mail readers actually trust the newspaper. You know, Daily Mail readers are very accustomed to the idea that not everything printed in its pages is true. Um, there was also recent polling done by Savannah, which, you know, the Daily Mail has been absolutely hammering the leader of the Labour Party in Britain, Keir Starmer, absolutely hammering him for years. And um, something like 38% of its own readership are planning to go out and vote for him. Um, the Sun is the same, and uh, you know more Sun readers are planning to vote for Labour for Keir Starmer than for the Conservative Party, which is the the party that the Sun supports. So just because stuff gets printed in these newspapers, it doesn't mean that it's believed even by their own readers, who sometimes hold those exact newspapers in quite low regard. So Harry must operate at a higher bar than the newspapers he's criticising. So, in short, basically, Harry should celebrate this as a win, and it is a win, and I'm sure he will be very relieved and very happy. However, he must also learn the lessons. Don't just assume everyone you don't like is always being completely evil all the time. You know, you've got to treat other people uh, the way that you want to be treated yourself, and that means you don't just throw spurious allegations around that even a high court judge with no particular reason to have a problem with Harry considers to be hopeless or an error of judgment. Um, and Harry should take this advice for his own self-interest, if nothing else, because he's going to earn the respect of the public if he can show people that he is a trustworthy and reliable source of information and not this kind of habitual exaggerator that his critics paint him as. It's kind of like if you have somebody who just constantly says everybody else is in the wrong and they are always in the right and they've never done anything wrong themselves, but everybody else is always constantly being evil to them. The risk in time is that people just simply stop believing what that person says or they start just taking it with a pinch of salt. And then once that bubble has burst, it's very hard to put it back together again. So for Harry, yes, absolutely, 100%. Celebrate this emphatic victory. He's got two more of these historic phone hacking cases to go. One is against the mail. That's the biggest one. The one against the sun is actually no longer about phone hacking, but it is about still going, and it's about the related issue of other unlawful information gathering. That is coming, no doubt, in the new year. So it'll be interesting to see whether he gets the win in those as well. And on that note, I'm going to take a quick break. But before I do, don't forget to rate and review us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favourite shows. And when I'm back, let's talk a little bit about William and Kate's Christmas card and a scandal over it that I think might have been slightly wide off the mark. BP added more than $70 billion to the US economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide 
at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Now, the royal family have released their 2023 Christmas cards, and King Charles and Queen Camilla went very formal uh, with an image of them in their crowns and robes from the coronation, so that's not a huge surprise. Obviously, it was by far and away the biggest thing from their year, and they will only get to do this once. So, not at all surprising that they would go down that road. Harry and Meghan's uh, was an image of them smiling and clapping at the Invictus Games, which was sent out to their supporters over email. Um, it was a very well photographed event that it was taken from, and it was like a moment that we, you know, we've included pictures from this in so many stories already. So it didn't feel hugely new, but in general, the pictures from that night were great pictures, and it was from the Invictus closing ceremony. And it was all back in September. People might remember Megan wore this incredible strapless teal dress by Colt Gaia, which I think is actually one of my favorite Megan outfits of the year and in a long time, actually. The only other contender for me was the gold Johanna Ortiz dress that uh, Megan wore to a awards gala back in May. It was where they were chased by the paparazzi. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it, you know, it was an incredible outfit. It's a good photo. It's a shame we didn't get something new, though. And obviously, it would have been lovely to get a family picture of Meghan and Harry with the kids, which is exactly what William and Kate did. I think their card was by far the most interesting, and it was also the most talked about. So William and Kate went for a kind of family portrait in black and white against a dappled grey background. So the whole background is just dappled grey. It's all like an artificial background. Um, Princess Charlotte, she was in the centre. She sat down on a chair. She looked relaxed and happy, smiling. She wore jeans and plimsolls. So it was all kind of like very cash. Um, and Prince George looked very stylish, though. He was just like quite sharp in a polo Ralph Lauren Oxford shirt and black trousers. Prince Louis had a similar look, but it was it just looked very kind of relaxed, but very sharp and, and smart on George. He looked fantastic. Um, now, the initial round of coverage was very much about just how relaxed it all was and all of that kind of thing. Then some people initially started making jokes about how it looked like they got it done at the mall um, because of this backdrop that they used. But then like various Photoshop theories started to emerge. Now, there was one that I actually thought was better, but that didn't take off. And that was this idea that one of William's legs had been cut out of the picture. And it is true that his legs look weirdly wide apart, um, given, you know, he's just kind of standing there in the background. But he's doing like, the, it, he must have been doing this kind of like power stance, you know, and people who stand with their legs really wide apart in order for the picture to make sense. But that didn't take off. The thing that captured people's imaginations was this idea that Louis had an extra finger but it's really weird because I don't think he actually does. But I think basically the reason why this all started is because anyone who works with AI at all will know that AI picture generators are famous at this particular moment in history for giving people extra fingers or just generally like messing up the fingers in pictures. And so at passing glance, it does look like Prince Louis has kind of, I guess, the start of an additional finger. 
um, but just like the kind of start of it, uh, not the whole thing. But actually, if you look really closely, it's just that his hand is kind of on the arm of a chair, two fingers are pointing down one side, and the other two are on top, and then his thumb is down the other side of the arm of the chair. So effectively, you can see four fingers, but in between his second finger and his middle finger, it's really white, like just the, you know, the white in between his knuckles. Because it looks really white, it looks like the start of another finger. But actually, he has exactly the right number of fingers in the picture, um, which is four. Uh, and it's just that his thumb is invisible because it's behind the arm of the chair. But it like this caused headlines all all across you know the British media and in America as well. The New York Post, I think, did something on it too. And it wound up being a joke on Saturday Night Live as well, which is quite funny because, I mean, it's complete, complete nonsense. It's, he has the right number of fingers. It's just the way it looks. It's like a trick of the eye. Um, but yeah, the SNL sketch was quite funny, to be fair. And I don't think um, it's conditional on it actually being true. I think it was just a kind of lighthearted dig. But basically, they did a piece saying, you know, covering it as though they were genuinely covering the story, saying it was a bad Photoshop job, which is what all the all the newspaper articles said. And then uh, joking that if, if that Meghan Markle might have a finger they can use. Um, if they need another one and then it cut to a kind of picture image of Megan uh, flipping her middle finger. Uh, so a gentle, gentle roast for William and Kate, um, which might even come as a bit of a relief over in uh, Camp Sussex, because obviously Harry and Megan got uh, ripped by quite a lot of comedians around about the start of the year when Spare came out. So they will probably think it's nice to see the comedy target heading in the other direction. But all in all, you know, I think then nice cheery set of Christmas cards. I think I don't actually dislike William and Kate's one. I get what people are saying about it looking like it was done in the mall. But I mean, it's really only the background. It's still a nice card, tasteful, black and white. Nice to see them looking a bit more relaxed. I actually thought George looked really stylish. Um, so yeah, why not? I thought it all looked good. And it came out, this was kind of like the tail end of all of the stuff about Endgame that obviously I've talked about before. So, you know, the kind of the fallout from Endgame was starting to kind of recede and ebb away. Um, And Kate had her uh, Together at Christmas Carol concert, which as expected, uh, Charles didn't attend, as I've discussed before. And then the Christmas card came out over the weekend. So I think they'll be actually fairly happy with the reception, even though people did make fun of it a little bit. I think most of all, they'll just be pleased that everybody moved on from talking about the Royal Race Saga and the uh, Christmas Carol concert. While it it took place on the Friday, but it doesn't actually get broadcast until Christmas Eve. So that's all still to come. And Kate does a little recorded thing for it, which will be shown, and then we can all watch it all. Okay, I'm going to take one more quick break. But before I do, a reminder to follow me on Twitter, or X as it's now called. I'm Jack underscore Royston. You will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. When I'm back, Harry and Meghan have bounced back in the polls. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. 
As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. In the last Royal Report, we looked at the dramatic revelation that King Charles had been named in the Dutch version of Omid Scobie's royal book, Endgame, as the person who made a racially charged comment about Prince Archie before he was born. Well, we asked Redfield and Wilton, the polling agency, to conduct polling on behalf of Newsweek to get a sense of how the issue impacted the popularity of different family members. So this was a straightforward favourability question, i.e., we asked, do you like this person or do you dislike them? And interestingly, everyone in December post Endgame was more popular than the last time we did this research, which was back in September. Um, So essentially, it didn't have a huge impact on American public opinion. Now, I think there are some clear reasons for that. But first of all, I just want to take a quick look at the polling itself. So I'm going to start with Harry and Meghan. So for Prince Harry, it was a good set of polling. He had a 17-point swing compared to September. So that's a, that's a real kind of chunky, mega swing in his favour. Back then, he wasn't actually doing too badly. He was on plus 12. But now he's on plus 29 um, after 45% of Americans said they liked him and 16% said they disliked him. This is all on the basis of a representative sample of 1,500 US adults. Uh, Megan, it was a similar story. Um, she back in September, she was on minus two, um, but she had a uh, a thirteen uh, or she had a seventeen point swing rather. Um, she was liked by thirty eight percent and disliked by twenty three percent, putting her on plus fifteen. So she is comfortably in positive numbers here, and that's a big chunky swing for her as well. Um, she was liked by an outright majority of, of millennials. Um, 53% compared to 16%. That's obviously, you know, a key market for Harry and Meghan. Boomers were the only age group in which she was disliked more than liked. But I don't think Harry and Meghan will be too worried about that because they have always had quite a strong focus on young people. And 51% of Joe Biden voters approved of Meghan compared to only 17% who opposed her. Um, And actually... Even among Trump supporters, it was only 35% disliked, 29% like. And for Harry, even Trump supporters liked him more than they disliked him. So they do look like they are starting to rebuild some of that kind of unifying presence that they had before the big collapse that followed the release of Spare and um, and their Netflix show this time last year. In fact, our polling was done um, on the exact one-year anniversary of the release of part one of Harry and Meghan, the Netflix uh, documentary. But actually, I was most interested of all to see what was going to happen with King Charles and Kate, because obviously they were the two royals who'd been named in Endgame. Um, and I was ready to be surprised. I was ready for them to have been damaged by it. I was actually ready for them to have not been damaged by it. But I was also quite surprised at just how big some of the bumps uh, were for royal family members. Charles, again, you know, it was this good, chunky, healthy seven-point swing in his net approval rating. Um, he was liked by 32% and disliked by 15%. Um, so that puts him on plus 17, which, you know, he, he had been on net zero. So he's now, you know, quite comfortably into positive numbers. So he'll be very happy with that, I'm sure. Um, and Kate also got a five point bump. She is generally the most popular member of the royal family in America. So she was already, you know, on a quite decent uh, net approval rating, but she went from plus 33 to plus 38. 47% of Americans said they liked her compared to 9% who disliked her. 
So what's it all about? You know, how is it that we went from, I mean, this was the bit that really stuck in my mind was that it, one of the things that Megan said to Oprah was if she revealed the name of the royal racist, uh, that would be really damaging for them. So that was her that was her explanation for why she wasn't naming names was that if she did so, it would be really damaging to them. And now we know a name. It's not been confirmed officially, but we have a name as published in Endgame and it has not been really damaging to Charles. So why? Well, I actually don't think Megan was necessarily wrong to say that it would have been damaging. I think had she included the name at the time that she did Oprah, it probably would have been damaging. But since then, I mean, just to recap what the atmosphere was like after Oprah, for those who have forgotten, because people, I, I hold nothing against people who forget. Everybody forgets everything. And it's so easy to do. But the atmosphere in the days after Oprah was like you could hear a pin drop. I mean, it was so dramatic. And it felt like anybody who in any way, shape or form disagreed with anything Megan had said was potentially going to be viewed as uh, like either racist or that they were denying her mental health struggles. Uh, P.S. Morgan obviously lost his job at that time at Good Morning Britain. It was an incredibly febrile atmosphere. But since then, the waters have been muddied really considerably. Um, and part of how that's happened, I think, is um, Prince Harry's comments around about the time that Spare was released in which, and also just the, the literal fact that he didn't return to that issue. So he released an entire kind of three, 400 page book and they released six hours of Netflix documentary without ever actually returning properly to this subject. I mean, Megan said a little thing about how she hadn't expected the race issue to be the big take home from the Oprah interview, which um, is slightly surprising. Harry did address it in interviews, though, and he said that Megan hadn't accused the royal family of racism which was a somewhat perplexing statement. He said instead it was unconscious bias and pointed out Megan had not used the word racism. However, she didn't need to use the word racism because the account she gave very clearly was an allegation of racial discrimination. And I think the best, seven people have got a little bit lost and confused in this issue and treated it as though it's a matter of opinion. There have even been people saying like, why does a, a white person have the right to define um, what racial discrimination is? But actually... Nobody really has uh, the right to define what racial discrimination is, except for the Equality Act. I mean, people can say they disagree with the Equality Act, but the definition of racial discrimination in Britain exists in law, and it exists in law for a reason, which is to stop these kind of arguments from taking place or from being required in order for courts to rule on questions of racism. So, what does the law of racial discrimination say? Well, it exists under the Equality Act, and um, it's enforced by a UK regulator called the Equality and Human Rights Commission, and this is their account on their website. Race discrimination is when you are treated differently because of your race, in one of the situations covered by the Equality Act. The treatment could be a one-off action or as a result of a rule or policy based on race. It doesn't have to be intentional to be unlawful. And this, I think, is where Harry and Meghan's position on this subject disintegrates, because what Meghan said to Oprah was very clearly an allegation of racial discrimination. It was not only what she said about the actual comment on skin tone, it was also the fact that she tied that to discussions about Archie's security and when he, whether he was going to be given a title. So this is exactly what was said. Oprah asked Megan. Uh, Megan had already described the titles issue. She'd said that there were discussions about denying her children titles, and she had said 
that um, there was discussion about denying them police protection. So Oprah said to Meghan, you certainly must have had some conversations with Harry about it and have your own suspicions as to why they didn't want to make Archie a prince. What are those thoughts? Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because of his race? Megan replied, I can give you an honest answer. In those months when I was pregnant, all around this same time. So, we haven't had him the conversation of he won't be given security, he's not going to be given a title, and also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. So, Oprah chased up with Megan and said, you mean... That if he were too brown, that would be a problem. Uh, Megan said that would be a safe assumption. Um, and Harry later suggested that the question was, what will the kids look like? So the key issue here, and this is where people have got kind of lost and chaotic and confused in this subject, is by focusing solely on the statement itself. But what Megan did was she used that statement, whatever it was, to explain what she described as conversations about denying her children security and titles. And that really is what cements the status of her account as an allegation of racial discrimination. So Harry can say that he thinks it's unconscious bias if he wants to, but the position under the law in Britain is that it doesn't have to be intentional to be unlawful. So in a way, you know, if Harry wants to say it's unconscious, he can say that, but it doesn't stop it from being an allegation of racial discrimination. So the issue for me is that Harry's wound up in this weird position, even though the allegation isn't directed at him, he's almost behaving a little bit like the kind of white employer who wants to wash their hands of all of their obligations under equality legislation by saying like, oh, it's not racism, it's unconscious bias. This is like what you expect from the person who's being accused, basically. It's not what you expect from the husband of the accuser. Um, and so because his account of what was e even just literally the facts of what Megan said runs completely contrary to, you know, like she's on video saying it and it runs completely contrary to how the law actually defines racial discrimination. Um, that's basically the whole issue has been muddied and there's nothing for people really to cling to. Um, the, you know, if people want to kind of wanted to call for the abolition of the monarchy or whatever they might they might want to say um, on the basis of an allegation of unconscious bias and then how do you evidence that well the account that megan gave to evidence it is not an allegation of unconscious bias let me give you an example of what unconscious bias actually is right and this is an example that i seem to recall appeared in a live set that stormzy did uh, stormzy being the uk grime rapper and he, the example he gave is Ballet shoes used to only be made in a colour that was designed to look good against white skin, which meant that there was it was effectively discriminatory against uh, ballet dancers with black skin because they were not going to look as good as their white counterparts. Now, the people who made ballet shoes weren't necessarily intending to create a negative outcome for people of colour. They were just trapped in a worldview where they assumed that they were making clothes for white people. They didn't think about the fact that they might also be making clothes for black people. So that is unconscious bias, right? That is not the allegation that Megan made. The allegation that Megan made was that there were concerns about whether her unborn child's skin might be too dark and that those concerns were linked to stripping him of titles and of his police protection detail. So basically, essentially, if Megan had just come out with... The, if they'd given a very clear account at the time, clear on the facts clear on who it was, 
then Meghan would probably have been right. You know, she would probably have been right. It probably would have been hugely, hugely damaging, whether to Charles, as as described in Endgame, or to somebody else if Endgame's wrong. It would have been hugely damaging. But Harry's comments in January have muddied the waters so much that there's basically nothing for people to cling to anymore. And that is why this allegation, it's so dramatic in March 2021, has fizzled out and basically caused zero damage to the king now that he has been named. And on that note, that's it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives, and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all.